1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind and information from experts that helps you be better. Chris Stemp here. I just recorded this interview and I had to come to do the intro while it was fresh in my mind. By the way, if you notice a weird sound, I'm sick, sinuses or whatever. Anyway, this week on the show, we're talking with Stephen Kotler. And if that name rings a bell, then you're a longtime listener, because back in September of 2015, we interviewed Stephen, one of our top episodes of all time. It was called Decoding the Science of Ultimate Human Performance, and it was about his best selling book, The Rise of Superman. Well, Stephen is back, and since that time, he has a decade of experience under him with very similar information. So yes, the book we're here to talk about is called NAR Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad. But as you'll see, what we really spend the entire time talking about is how to achieve peak performance aging. Really, what Steven has dedicated his life to is how do we get better with age? Now, oftentimes this is through flow, but it's also through neuroscience, mindset change, physical changes, regenerative medicine, etc. Quick background on Steven. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written like 15 books, and they are almost all around this same topic. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes. He's the executive director of the Flow Research Collective, which we will link to and talk about at the end of the show. He is the co-founder of a hospice and special needs dog sanctuary. He's dedicated his life to human performance. I could go on and on. Again, we are linking to all of the resources in this post. OK, so get ready for this. This is a fast-paced tons of information discussion bordering on monologue from Stephen, but I appreciate his passion, and I absolutely appreciate his knowledge. The book is called "Nar Country: Growing Old: Staying Rad." Stephen Kotler, Let's get into it. Enjoy. Stephen, welcome to the show. It's been years since we've had you on. We've been reminiscing. And I said, forget it. We're just hitting the record button. We'll jump in the middle of it. And then we'll get to your book, Gnar Country. Everybody listening is a reader. They they love authors. And uh, you were just telling me about your
2: process and your view on it. Would you mind just Let's be honest. What tell us what you tell me what you're saying about readers. Let me define the terms. I'm going to introduce the terms and then I'll define them. They sound a lot more offensive than they than they are, but they're a shorthand that, that sticks in people's minds. So I always say that readers have changed. Right? They're very different. Readers were a lot in the, in the 90s when I started out as a journalist. I could do a two thousand word lead to a magazine article. That's a five page lead, and then I have to get to my point. Right? You readers would give me five pages now. You don't have three sentences. And so what I tell people is today's readers are impatient, greedy, and stupid. And what I mean is they're impatient for the book to get good. They're not willing to give you a long on-ramp into seductive writing. They want it good from, from go. Um, they want you to catch hold of their attention. There's a million things distracting them. So entertain them from the first sentence. Two, um, they're greedy. They want it to apply to their lives. If, they, if, if it's within the first paragraph, if they don't understand how this is going to impact them, make them better, stronger, faster, whatever, um, you start losing a lot of readers. And stupid, and this is, this is really for authors, not for readers. It's just that authors often, they make this mistake, which is they don't understand that nobody knows as much about your subject or cares as much about your subject as you do. And your job as an author is is to take that all that passion you've got for the thing and put it into your reader. And if you're not doing that, right, then all you're doing is showing off with like these fancy details. And yes, okay, you know a great deal about this subject, but nobody can connect and nobody's gonna care.
1: The thing is listening, I agree. I think everybody listening probably agrees. If you think of when you pick up a book, how much time are you willing to give it and what's going on in your mind while you're thinking of it? And in fact, podcasting is very similar. We've been told many times, an hour is too long. Uh, make sure right off the bat, you're telling them the value they're gonna get. Make sure the title is catchy. And I will say this, those that have listened to our show with regularity, I think are anomalies because we have yet to give in to that structure, the fast paced. And I think for those that are willing to uh, sit with it, there's a benefit. And so I think we get that anomaly in our in yeah. our discussion
2: today. I will I will say that almost all of the books that have actually changed me, where I came out the other end, um they were challenging and most of them were over 500 pages long. There are exceptions, um and especially in the, in, the, in the fiction realm, there are exceptions, but long books that re- where you have to really wade through idea are the ones where I come out the other side different. And that's one of the things I'm looking for in, in reading and all experiences. I want to come out the other side different.
1: For a prolific writer, such as yourself, it always, I'm always very interested in what books have done that for you. What are a couple, one or two that have done that for
2: you? I always start this list. Bone Games by Rob Schultes, um was the book that actually sort of set me down the path of studying the neuroscience of flow um Mm -hmm. even though it's a book book written in the 80s david Quammen's the song of the dodo which if you want to understand what's going on environmentally in the world today it's the sing i think it should be mandatory reading for anybody in office Um, and it's really a book about like a very obscure field known as island biogeography which is the development of populations on islands um which doesn't sound like it means anything but it like it's (laughs) it's really sort of the key book for that there's um God, there's a there's a bunch more. Uh, the Origin of Wealth by Bodecker, which is a complexity science take on economics, is amazing. Um, there's a ton of, of, of sort of neuroscience books that I could that I could list here, um, but they're super technical. Um, and the best books in neuroscience are usually textbooks, anyways.
1: Um, yeah, well, I can tell you, I'm going to go check out those three at least. So selfishly, I love, that's why I, love, I, I asked. love
2: those three books. Um, let's dive into wherever we're going next.
1: Let's do it. All right. So here to talk about your new book, Nar Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad. And I have to tell you the irony of talking to you right now is I sit trying to find a comfortable spot due to a massive disc herniation I have that I am going in for uh, epidural next week and who knows what comes from there. The idea of growing old is very present on my mind and wanting to stay rad. So like the timing couldn't be more perfect especially how you and I talked almost 10 years ago and have since definitely grown older. So tell us about the impetus for this book. Uh, how'd you get to this one?
2: The book, I got to give you a little bit of backstory and then I'll answer your question, but you're going to like the answer because uh, uh, we share a huge fondness for me high. So um, I have been looking at what is now known as peak performance aging. You have to understand peak performance aging is a relatively new term. That's what the book is about. Um, and it's really the intersection of about ten different fields, and I've been looking at, studying, working in four or five of them, and I'll I'll come back to the most prevalent, which is flow. So most people, if they know me, Csikszentmihalyi's sent me work, they know flow. Maybe they've read his book on creativity. What they don't, or what they, maybe most people don't know is that chick sent me high Four or five or six different books on adult development and flows, very crucial role in adult development and, and 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 that sort of stuff. And it was where his focus turned towards the end of his life. So I've been looking at this stuff for about, as I said, fifteen. 18 years. And it hadn't really coalesced into anything. We used a lot of it. My wife and I run an animal sanctuary, a dog sanctuary, do hospice care. So some of the work had come out of like stuff we've been doing for dogs and does it work for humans? And, you know, those kinds of questions. Some of it was, was my books on technology where I was looking at regenerative medicine and longevity science and those kinds of questions. But four, three and a half years ago before COVID, um, right before COVID, uh, the last phone conversation I got to have with me, I just sent me mean, had sort of the godfather of flow psychology. And obviously you'd figure in my, my own career. Um, he had had a stroke and I had called him up to see if he was okay. He was in his eighties. And uh, I'd also called him up to ask him this really funny question, which is I had noticed in some of his writings that had just gotten translated into English, that he was like name drop. These were older writings, but he was name dropping like classic, Yosemite sixties climbers. And I was like, I knew he was a mountaineer. I knew he was a climber, but like, and I've been talking to his students and they would tell these stories about how he'd show up on Monday with like bruises on his face from being outdoors. So he was getting after it. And I just, I looked at these names. I was like, I know those names, but like I'm in this world, like there's no way you would know those names if you weren't really in the mix. So I called him up to say, Hey man, you got to tell me about the role that action sports actually played in the development of flow psychology. You've never really talked about it out loud. You talk about being in a concentration camp. You talk about your work on artists, but let's talk about action sports. And there's this long pause, huge, like a minute, minute and a half. And I think I've offended him. I don't like, I literally don't know what's <laughs> going on. Right. And I'm sort of freaking out on the other end of the phone. Like, did I overstep? Did I say something wrong? And finally I hear, you know, he's, he's talk. he's always been a, he always speaks a little slowly. Anyways. He's like, well, Steven, you gotta be careful. And I'm at this point thinking, Oh shit, he's lost the plot. Like he does. <laughs> you, like, right. Like, Oh crap. What do I do <laughs> now? And I'm like, well, uh, Mike, what do you mean? You gotta be careful. He's like, well, you do something your entire life for flow. And then you get to be my age and forget about climbing rocks. Forget about climbing mountains. Some days I can barely get out of bed. You need a backup plan for flow. You got to be careful. And it was literally like one flow junkie to another just saying, look, have as many gateways. And if this is your thing, and clearly it is, have, as you as you age, have as many gateways into flow as possible. So for reasons that we can get to, um, I took a bunch of ideas out of seven or eight whiz-bang fields and I combined them and I said, these things are true in the laboratory. If they're true in the wild, older adults should be, I forget about like teaching the old dog, learning new tricks. The older adults should be able to, if these things are true onboard incredibly challenging, difficult, complicated, so-called impossible skills, even very late in life. So as a test, I decided to see if I could teach myself how to park ski in my fifties. Park skiing is the discipline of skiing that involves doing tricks on rails and jumps and wall rides and such. is very dangerous. It's very acrobatic for about 12 different biological reasons. It's very, uh, it's considered extremely impossible if you're over 35. And once you get to 45, 50, it's just it's downright crazy, right? Nobody does. And
1: wait, it. is that, is that learning it at that age is difficult or just doing it because of the taxation on the
2: body? Both actually. Um, but it's learning. So, so... Now we have to give you a little bit more of the backstory, which is the traditional theory on aging, which sort of dominated the 20th century, as most of us believe, is what I like to call the long, slow rot theory. It's the idea that all of our mental skills and our physical skills decline over time and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. And that was so that for for a bunch of variety of reasons, that theory shows up in the early 1900s. Uh, around 1904, actually. And then uh, Freud makes a comment and that sort of kicks it off. And by like 1995, all we've done is figured out every single thing that declines, right? Like all we've done in a hundred years is like figure out how we fucking fall apart, right? And that's the story everybody knows. And then in around 95, 96, holes start appearing in the story, like weirdness starts happening. 20-year studies, studies that start in the 70s and end in the 90s sort of get wrapped up and the discoveries are shocking and surprising. And then it just keeps going from there. And most people don't know any of this story. They know the long, slow rot theory or some facsimile thereof, and they don't actually know the news story. And the news story is Pretty much all, not all is an exaggeration, but the vast majority of skills that we used to think declined over time, we now know are use it or lose it skills. So if you never stop training these skills, you can hold on to them, you can advance them far later in life than anybody thought possible. Additionally, there are actually profound and beneficial changes in the brain in our fifties that bring on whole new levels of intelligence, creativity, wisdom, and empathy. So... It turns out that not only can the old dog learn new tricks, the old dog is actually better at learning certain kinds of tricks than younger dogs. And none of this was sort of really common knowledge. Um, So that's a lot. The book is, is a performance diary. It just literally shows you my attempt to learn how to park ski, but I have to tell you the results because that's where it gets interesting. So, to measure progress, we made a list of 20 tricks that sort of would get you from zero. I had no skills going and I could ski, but I had no park skills, could, didn't know any tricks to intermediate. And intermediate was important for a bunch of flow-based reasons that we're going to come to later because it's a totally different part of this story. But if I could get to zero to intermediate and I figured if it took me five years to do it, that's a win, right? If I was 60 by the time I got there, cool, who cares? I started at 53 and I learned every trick on my list in three and a half months. I've never actually, we, now we took a very modified learning protocol. We took a whole bunch of ideas and built the learning protocol specifically that we thought would work in older adults. And um, it worked incredibly well, like incredibly well. My ski partner, guy named Ryan Wicks, he's 20 years younger than me. He's a former sponsored athlete, park skier. He had gotten hurt left park skiing, had a family, three kids, job. And he came back and just decided to pick up the sport again because I was on my mission. He was going to be on the same mission. And he got farther like in three months than he'd ever gone in his entire career, including the time he was a sponsored athlete. And then we went to the end of that. We were like, oh shit, this is interesting. This is this is the one of the most radical experiments in peak performance aging anybody's ever run. It's also a tiny pilot study right? We've got two data points. So we came back the following season and we took 17 older adults, the same learning protocol. And in four days, they were most of them weren't even as good as Ryan and me when they started, they were intermediates, most of them. And in four days on the mountain, we got them from zero to dangerous as well, using the same protocol. And you don't have to take my word for it if you go to narcountry.com you can click on the tab that says, view the peak performance aging experiment. We had a National Geographic cameraman follow us around. And to one of the ways we judge progress is there's a governing body in free skiing that's sort of like when the Olympics happen. this is how they judge performance. We filmed everything, right? And there's specific criteria and we judge progress. And we saw in four days on the hill with our intermediate and ages 29 to 68. So we had folks in their late 60s, we saw a 26.5% boost in progress an incredibly challenging physical activity in four days on the hill. So, um, and then um, just to make sure it worked sort of outside of action sports, we actually stripped out the park skiing. We've, we found uh, some physical replacements that give you what park skiing gives you with a lot less danger. And we used it as a training protocol. We built a training called Enter the Gnar. It'll, it'll later become something else I'm sure, but it's Enter the Gnar for now. Uh, though it won't be, get released to the public till probably February through the Flow Research Collective. Um, and we tested it with like 350 people. The goal was twofold. One, we wanted to explode people's mindset towards aging. And let me just tell you why it matters. So one of the earliest findings in peak performance aging, and it started with a woman named Ellen Langer back in the 70s and the 80s. She was at Harvard and she started, she figured out that aging is as much a mental... Uh, process is a physical process right and so she started working on mindset we now know that a positive mindset towards aging i am excited about uh the second half of my life i think my best days are ahead of me it translates to an extra seven and a half years of health and longevity you could be morbidly obese and have a shitty mindset towards aging it's more important to change your mindset than to lose weight it's as important as quitting smoking um so uh this uh, this is some of the work that starts to show up in the seventies. We wanted to see we would explode people's mindset towards aging and teach them how to engage in what we call a NAR style quest, right? The book is called NAR country. NAR is action sports slang. It means any environment that's high in perceived risk, high in actual risk, which is a great description of our later years, and a really <laughs> good description of sort of our, the gritty mindset. You need to thrive during the later, those later years, but there's advantages to this kind of NAR style quest where you, find a really hard physical challenge or challenge for yourself, some sort of unfinished business. I had unfinished business in skiing, whether it was got settled. Park skiing was not where my business was, but I had unfinished business. And this was just a way to try to close that loop. Everybody's got those open loops, those dreams that they haven't gotten to whatever it is. And, there's huge advantages in in this kind of narrative style quest we can come to in a minute. But the goal was could we explode their mindset on and get them on a path towards whatever their quest was? And we've seen everything from like uh women, uh, women who one woman was now like aiming for the Iron Man, another woman is aiming for a solo art show in Japan. We've seen Folks in their 60s learning to kite surf like it, on and on and on and on. Um, and the results have been spectacular also. So we think we're on to something. NAR Country tells the story of the experiments. And there's, you know, obviously a bigger story. The story in NAR is fun, right? It's an adventure story. So the science is saved towards the end of the book and into the append and, and that sort of stuff. It's not as thick as some of my other books, Um with science because I wanted it to be really fun for the reader. But, you know, it's a playbook for peak performance aging and peak performance in general.
0: This episode is brought to you by HIMSS. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out HIMSS. HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. HIMS offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims.com/smart. That's H-I-M-S.com/smart. For your personalized treatment options, one last time, hymns.com/smart. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com/twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription's plan.
1: I find that oftentimes with things like this, it, it gets frustrating because I get to talk to the expert. I get to talk to you and I get all excited. And then when I go off on my own and I'm trying to do research and I'm trying to figure out how to action some of these things, uh, it's a lonely road with a lot of misinformation. And as you and I both know, any impediments to behavior change are are going to almost stop it because we are people of inertia and momentum. So I want to get into a lot of the details. I took notes on it, but let's just start here. If I'm listening and I'm excited about this, maybe I'm aging, maybe I, I want this mindset shift before I hang up this podcast, what can I actually do to not stop, to not be interrupted, to not fall victim to uh, too much information elsewhere?
2: Okay, so let me start by saying most of the advice people get is wrong. Most of the information out there is is, is terribly wrong. And let me, most people, when they're interested in peak performance aging, they start, their diet is the first thing they fuck with, or supplements, right? And if you wade into the world of functional medicine, functional medicine means take everything because we don't actually know. And by the way, one of the things that I really dislike about functional medicine is known problem in aging is polypharmacy right? Multiple drugs with multiple combinations and nobody knows the effects and downsides. That's the exact functional medicine protocol. And whenever I'm dealing with those doctors, I'm like, no, no, no. I want to go one thing at a time because I need to know if it works. I'm, you know, and sometimes they'll say, well, these two things work in combination and I'll say, okay, but for the next two weeks, I'm doing nothing else because I need to know. Um, I, uh, what I like to tell people on this front is, And then I'll go back to actually answering your question. But this is is my public service announcement on the information side. In our country, at the end of the book, I cover regenerative medicine. And regenerative medicine um, is sort of the part of functional medicine. It's the part that includes sort of like replacing tendons and tissues and organs and bones. And what I always say is regenerative medicine is true up to the point of tendons and ligaments. It's starting to be semi-true for bones. Um, depending on what you've broken. But every claim beyond that, we can replace organs, we can heal cancer, we can heart, like all that stuff. Um, Maybe, sometimes, occasionally, right? But we're not there yet. We're probably five years away. We're absolutely moving that direction six years away. And the progress is so quick, but you're being sold a bill of goods. And also on the functional medicine tip, like you can go see these folks and you know, they're great for I tore my rotator cuff or I got a problem in my knee. They're not great for long COVID. Now, nobody else is great for long COVID either, but like they're like the, they're really like there's a lot of like those kinds of chronic ailments. First of all, stuff is very, very individual still. So it doesn't seem like there's one stop shopping for anybody. But I really like, I caution people with that. I bankrupted myself early days, 20 years ago when I started this work. I was trying to recover from a long illness and I bankrupted myself with functional medicine, like literally. And, and um, so I like huge grain of salt. And it was a joke until about five years ago, but there was a turning point we reached and it started to get real. And now it's starting to get real. And as far as tendons, ligaments, and bones, there's it, it the proof is, is solid at this point, I believe. Um, anyways, all that aside, here's peak performance aging in a, ten- in a single sentence. If you want to rock till you drop, you have to regularly engage in challenging, creative and social activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. That is peak performance aging in a single sentence. Now, I can define all those terms. We can walk through what the hell that means and why it is. But there's one thing I need to tell you before I can do that, which is this is a protocol for lifelong learning among many other things, is a protocol for like mastery and taking on hard challenges late in life and lifelong learning. Lifelong learning matters. And this is some of the work that started showing up in the 90s. Um, because if you want to stave off cognitive decline, Alzheimer's and dementia, lifelong learning is the absolute key. In fact, we need expertise and wisdom more than we need anything else. And the reason is the prefrontal cortex, part of your brain that's right back here, Um, this is the area it's maybe the most powerful portion of our brain it's also the most vulnerable it's from an evolutionary standpoint it's the newest portion of our brain it's most likely to suffer cognitive decline very rarely do you end up with alzheimer's like deep in your brain stem it doesn't like you get other stuff back there but it doesn't you don't get these diseases there you get them in the prefrontal cortex so both expertise and wisdom if you want to protect the prefrontal cortex you need the birth of new neurons and you need them to create New neural networks, really redundant neural networks. That's what expertise and wisdom are. They're huge networks across the prefrontal cortex with lots of redundancy. The brain, this is one of the principles of of how the brain works. It never does things the same way twice. It likes redundancy. It likes backup. It likes to be able to come to the same solution 17 different ways. Um, And so expertise and wisdom is the best way to do that. So this formula is a formula for expertise and wisdom on top of everything else. But challenging social and creative activities are important for the following reasons. One, they produce flow for a bunch of different reasons that we couldn't go into, but they tend to produce flow. Two, we know that if you want the sort of cognitive superpowers of aging, the additional intelligence, creativity, empathy and wisdom that comes, there's a moderator, which is a psychological term for an if then condition. You need to be engaged in creative activities to train the brain uh, to think in these new styles, which become possible in our 50s, but we need to like do a little work to unlock them. And that's, everything flows from there. So you have to start with creativity. Social activities matter because social connection is foundational to successful aging, healthy aging, healthy living, positive psychology. I can go on and on and on and on and on, but it becomes really, really, really important uh, for preserving cognitive function and physical function later in life, then there's like long lists of science here. I could talk for an hour about this very thing, but we have to be social as, as we age, right? So and so challenging social and creative activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play. What the hell is dynamic, deliberate play? Dynamic, I said earlier that all the skills we use to think declined over time are user-lose-it skills. So on the physical side of that equation, there are five skills that matter most Over time, as we age, strength, stamina, agility, balance, and flexibility. Dynamic literally means it uses all five of those things at once. You can train those independently, but it takes a really long time. So the the World Health Organization for Peak Performance Aging recommends 150 to 300 minutes of aerobic training a week, two strength training days, three balance, agility, and flexibility, right? So if you're really applying by the rules, that's like two hours of training five days a week. Or you find one, like for me, it was park skiing. For some people, it's tennis, badminton. But like you want something that demands all that stuff, power, fast twitch muscle response, hand-eye coordination, all of those things mixed into one that's dynamic. So deliberate play, you've heard of deliberate practice. That's Anders Ericsson's fabulous idea about expertise. But as Anders himself pointed out, and a lot of other people have pointed out, myself, David Epstein, Scott Barry Kaufman. It's a very limited recipe for expertise. It's very domain specific. If you're talking about mathematicians, if you're talking about violin players, you know, there's certain domains where deliberate practice, which is repetition with incremental advancement, works really, really well. But for most activities, deliberate play is super better, (laughs) super better uh, to use uh, Jay McDonald's phrase um the reason is deliberate play is simply repetition without repetition or repetition with improvisation you do the same thing you did before but you improv a little bit on top of it in a playful manner why does this matter so much a couple of reasons one from a motivation standpoint deliberate practice you only get one there's only one thing you can do that's right if you don't do the exact same thing you did and advance it a little bit you're wrong right that's usually demotivating deliberate play you can literally go in any direction. The only wrong answer is doing the exact same thing you did before, right? That's the only wrong answer. Every other solution is a right answer. So much more motivating. Also, when you're playing, there's no shame, there's no judgment, there's a lot more self-forgiveness, there's less consciousness, there's less fear, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of performance benefits to that, and you get a ton of endorphins from play, a ton of endorphins, which help. Amplify learning. The more neurochemicals we get during experience, the better chance it'll move from short-term holding to long-term storage. Endorphins are a really big driver of, of, of memory, right? And we tend to remember events where there's a lot of endorphins and other these other neurochemicals in our system. So you get much better learning. So dynamic deliberate play, just m- much amplifies that expertise and wisdom. You get farther, faster, et cetera, et cetera. You're not losing your functional fitness skills. And then novel outdoor environments is the last bit. So novelty, one, big flow trigger, right? Novel environments drive dopamine into our system, which drives focus, which drives flow. Um, and uh, that's usually important for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it combats the mindset of old. Um, you know, it lays, you have to rekindle a lot of dopamine pathways to sort of fight off that mindset of old for a bunch of different reasons we can talk about. Novel outdoor environments. We talked earlier, if you want to protect brain function, what matters, neurogenesis and new networks. Where do most of new neurons get birthed in the adult brain? In the hippocampus. It's the part of our brain that does long-term memory and location, place. It's filled with grid cells and place cells. Why? We evolved hunter-gatherers. So remembering emotionally charged experiences in outdoor environments is the key to survival. When we were starving at the end of winter, where was that ripe fruit tree? When we were thirsty and found that watering hole, where was it? When we passed that cave and got attacked by the bear, where right? that's what the brain is designed to remember. I always say peak performance is getting our biology to work for us rather than against us, right? That's the... That's what peak performance is. This is exactly what that is. So when you put all this together, you just get sort of a just a great formula for what uh, we should be doing. Um, and interestingly, I just wrote in a, a piece about this. Um, I'm not uh, I, I stay very far from politics, but I will point out that if we're looking at like older elected officials or older CEOs or any of those questions, we want older people in office, running our companies for a lot of reasons because of the cognitive superpowers of aging, because of what the adult brain does, but we don't want them in office if they are not regularly engaging in challenging social and creative activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments or some facsimile thereof, because then they haven't done what they needed to do and they're not, they're not the people we, we want, but they're sort of the dream leaders. If they've done the right stuff, without the right stuff, they are a problem in office or, or running companies.
1: If I listen to you talk about this, I'm going, yep, still excited about it. Need to break it down. Peak performance aging. You defined it a little bit for us uh, and we can take a guess, but at its surface, a lot of what we talked about is cognitive or mental. How much of this is physical
2: and how much of it uh, can be sustained or grown as we age. A lot of it is physical. And I say, we can kick ass very late in life, but you sort of want to train uh, for your later years a little bit like a professional athlete. So you train like a pro, you got to recover like a pro, recovery becomes absolutely critical over 50. Um, and you can't really slack off on your training because once you read a certain age, if you're not moving forward, you're sliding backwards. And to take it one step further, the single—this is this is a wild fact—the single most important. I'll just give you a guess. Let's play a guess again. Okay, let's do it. The single most important correlate for peak performance, aging, for holding on to mental and physical function um, l- into our later years.
1: Uh, I mean, uh,
2: genetics, leg strength. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's wild. And nobody's 100% certain why. We know like the data is really overwhelming. Um, they think, so, and, it, and this is very also true for cognitive function, and they think it's two reasons. Um, there's probably more, and one of these reasons could be wrong, but this is the thinking. One, we talked about the importance of social activity. So, if your legs go, right, and you lose mobility social activity plummets and social activity is one of the best ways to maintain healthy cognitive function. So that's part of it. Second part of it is cooler and more interesting and gives older people something, uh, one place to start on the physical side. And I'll speak more about this. Um, so bone density decreases over time and what most people don't know, because this is very cutting, this is sort of the cutting edge of physiology at this point, our bones turn out to be, the nutrient and mineral storage factory for the entire body and they store a lot of the stuff the brain runs on your brain runs on calcium for example where do you think it comes from and the bones when bones break down right there's they can build up build up and they break down the brain that's that what gets broken down is one of the things that can pass through the blood-brain barrier so a lot of the things that we see as cognitive decline may be linked to bone density and bone health. And it turns out there's a lot we can do for that. At, a, at the low end, we recommend hiking with a weight vest. doesn't give you huge improvements, but it, it allows you to train all aspects of functional fitness, save flexibility. You should stretch before and after, but it gives you almost everything else and an improved bone density. Um, so that was one of the ways I trained for, uh, for skiing. And um, if you've been away from physical activity for a long time, I always say start with a movement professional, somebody who can watch you walk and figure out where old injuries are impacting your gait and what needs to get fixed before you dive into heavy physical activity. The problem is we have two muscle categories. We've got prime movers, your big muscles and stabilizers, your rotator cuffs and your hip flexors. Over time, the the body wants to be energy efficient, so it shifts loads onto the prime movers. And your stabilizer muscles start to atrophy. So any movement professional who's, who's good can sort of watch you move, watch you walk and figure out where your weaknesses are. And it, like if you broke your ankle when you were 17, as it was healing, you learned to walk a little different. You favored your right leg over your left leg and, and it, those things add up over time and you want to see if you can fix them ahead of time. Um, with a month or two of uh, sort of rehabilitation before you get into the heavier weight vest stuff. But if you don't want to do any of that with bone density, um, there's a company called OsteoStrong that's freaking amazing. Um, I'm very, this is one of these biohacking things that um, I'm suspicious of most of the stuff. I like OsteoStrong because they've got crazy data. They have found, so your bones um, can only really produce new bone when pushed under a a lot of load right so um and it takes a lot of force and if you're not getting the force exactly right you can injure yourself so they've built four exercise machines that literally it's a 10 second workout you work out on each one for 10 seconds it's 40 seconds total um and then you go home And what you see, like the machine records the force you're putting in, and what they do is it's a very slow movement, but they perfectly load all your bones in non-critical positions in the exact way they're designed to be loaded, and they load everything at once. And as a result, bone density starts to massively increase. And so this will protect against injury. It tends to heal a lot of like tendon and ligament kinds of problems um, doesn't regrow bone or, uh, doesn't regrow cartilage, but, uh, you get, you get more bone and, um, uh, that's, you know, the osteostrong is, I think in 120 cities at this point. I mean, they're ever they, I live in Tahoe and there's one in Reno and if Reno has one, they're everywhere, yeah. right? my <laughs> father lives in Cleveland, they're four in Cleveland and they get weird results like this, I need to see data on. Um, but, uh, theoretically because the bones uh, store so many things they're seeing a lot of reversals of type 2 diabetes by increasing bone density type 2 diabetes is going is going down um, I want to see more data on that finding from them and there's like I think three big bone studies coming out around their stuff by top 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 people they've got they've had others but I want like when um, the preliminary results are really good but I want to see them all the way through before I'm willing to make that claim is hundred percent truthful. but that's a, that anybody can do that, right? Anybody can, uh, as is strong. Um, and what's cool about it is bone density declines over time. You can literally like train with them for like six months and reverse like 10 years of bone density and just hang out for 10 years and then come back 10 more years and, and do it again. Like it's sort of like that, which is wild. So, um, and you can do it once a week is the craziest thing. It's like once a week for 10 weeks and it works. Um, I love that. Yeah. I will also say that if you go into one of those Austria Strongs, they have a bunch of other gizmos, right? They, they, there's a bunch of other gizmos, whether or not the other gizmos work for a damn thing. I'm not speaking to, right? That's, fair. that's on them, but the actual machines that they built that work on bone density, that's the real deal. And, um, so that's what I mean by, um, there's some stuff on the physical side, but it's also related to the mental side, right? Like there's no, there isn't, there's no real separation, and, but here's the cool thing: There's studies saying there's two sides of this coin. Peak performance aging starts young. Like there, are, we, I mean, we, we, we. If you want to thrive successfully, for example, um, there's a direct correlation to your optimism levels in your 20s and how and when you're going to die 50 years later. Literally, they can they can literally if uh, they can literally sort of analyze. If you write a paragraph about like who you were, where you came from, and, and what you're thinking about going forward in your 20s, they can analyze it now um, and essentially predict what decade you're gonna die with well, stunning accuracy. <laughs> that's um, terrifying. That, uh, for anybody who's curious, look up the Sisters of Notre Dame. This is the famous study that was the first to prove it. And one of the reasons they found out is the Sisters donated their brains to science. They're really into education. It's a big group of, interna- of, of, of nuns in America. And to enter the sisterhood, most enter at 22, they have to write these essays. And so they, somebody asked the question, they wanted to analyze the essays for like levels of optimism and mindset and that sort of thing and see if it correlated to anything 50 years later as these women started to pass away and they started to realize women who were the most optimistic and positive in their 20s were living the longest. Um, So like there's really, it's, it's. It's a physical mental process at the same time. The other thing I want to say, because this is the thing, this nothing I've said so far is going to make sense until I give you the protocol that we used because it's a different learning protocol. And so you want to approach activities differently later in life. I sort of talked about how to like onboard yourself into physical activities and make sure you don't get hurt. Two things to know. The protocol I've I've talked about is designed to keep you safer. Um, The second thing is we're not as fragile as we think and we can come back from injury and I've broken more things than you could possibly imagine and come back from everything again and again and again. I was told that I would never run again or ski again when I was 24, I think 23. I mean like over and over, I've been told these crazy things by doctors and they haven't been true. And um, you know, and, and that's most people's experience. They most people tend to give up, Coming back from stuff and they accept their defeat as like this is this is what is is real. Um, but but usually there's there's a way to come back from almost anything in my experience. That said, here's what we did. So I said earlier that this was a flow-based protocol that we used. And right, I wanted to learn how to park ski and get to intermediate, and why does that matter? So let's talk about a couple of flow triggers. Flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. That's in rise of Superman. Art Impossible, again, in our country. um, And two of them that matter for this discussion, the challenge skills balance and creativity. So the challenge skills balance flow follows focus. All the triggers do. They drive our attention into the now, into the present moment. And the most famous is the challenge skills balance. It says we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch, but not snap. And metaphorically, we often talk about it as about a 5% difference. Most people can get into flow when the challenge is about 5% greater than your skill set. So that's just outside your comfort zone. So you got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, but not too uncomfortable. You don't want to overload the system with anxiety and fear. That's the first trigger that matters. The second is creativity. So, pattern recognition, when we link two ideas together, that causes the brain to release dopamine. We've all had this experience. You've done a crossword puzzle. This do, could get an answer right. That little rush of pleasure you get, that's dopamine. Um, and it drives focus into, into the present moment. When you look at a mound of snow as a skier and go, oh, I can use that mound to like grind across or throw a 180. That's pattern recognition. That's the creative interpretation of terrain features. And it will drive you into flow. So this said, the reason I wanted to get to intermediate is I was sort of like, skiing was my backup plan, like rock climbing, mountaineering was to, to set me high. But I'm a bit I was a big mountain guy which means the only way I was getting into skiing was faster speeds, bigger risks, bad plan, right? So I knew if I could learn, get to intermediate, intermediate is when the randomness goes away, right? And you don't take as many stupid falls and like you can sort of control your learning, gets a lot safer. Even if I could get to intermediate, I knew because of pattern recognition, I would be able to creatively interpret the entire mountain. I didn't need gnarly, rad, Alaskan, whatever to get me into flow. I could use little mounds on the side of the road, run, and it was a lot safer once I got there. So my backup plan was I'm going to get a million more entrances into flow and my favorite activity in the world. And the learning is going to be dangerous. But once I get to where I want to be, that's going to be the gateway. So how did I get there? What the first thing that we realized is that there is something called allostatic load. The allostatic load is literally the impact of, of trauma over time, right? Could be emotional trauma, could be physical trauma, whatever injury, whatever. It, it leaves a residue on our physiology, our nervous system um, and our performance. And what we realized is that in older adults that challenge skills sweet spot, even if they didn't know this, probably shrunken it's probably not five percent it's probably like down to one percent so here's what we did we said we didn't try to teach people new tricks park skiing is eight foundational movements jumping crouching slashing grinding a 180 a 360 and skiing backwards or, or surf or snowboarding backwards switch um those are the basic movements we uh would pick about two movements a day and teach people them. Start with something that you can do automatically. 100% of the time with no conscious interference and no fear. And we knew everybody was an intermediate, right? In our in our study group and intermediate skiers and snowboarders can all hockey stop. Throw your skis or snowboard side. So it's They teach it to beginners. It's right. It's literally probably the line between beginner and advanced beginners. Can you hockey stop? And so we knew everybody could a hockey stop. If you raise... The terrain, 10 degrees, and have them hockey stop across like a raised snow berm, that's a grind or a slash depending on where you put your weight. So we knew everybody had a hockey stop that they could do automatically with no consciousness, no worry, no fear. And we knew even if you raise it five degrees, that's one inch at a time. And just raise it five degrees and do it in a playful, improvisational, not heart, right, that kind of manner. That was our goal. And we knew if we could get people creatively interpreting the train features, that would drop them into flow. Flow amplifies learning. In studies run by the U.S. Department of Defense, it's like 250 to 500% above normal. That would take care of the tricks. And the reason we knew we would take care of the tricks is the other thing we were doing is we were playing follow the leader style games through the mountains. So somebody would be the leader and you would do when we watch somebody else perform a motion and body cognition tells us that our mirror neurons run the exact same program. And you get a go signal if you have the movement, you get a little burst of dopamine and you can feel it if you've got good interior receptive skills. If you don't have the move, you get a little norepinephrine, a little fear and you can feel it. And so if you can get other stuff out of the way and really tune into these receptive signals, and we did a bunch of stuff to keep people quiet and focused on the hill to make that happen, you can watch the person in front of you. If you get the ghost signal, you do what they did. If you don't, you dial it back and do what you can do. One inch at a time, go slow to go fast. And the funny part about this protocol is it works so well. We found this for myself, for Ryan, for everybody in our study group, we have to hold people back because you, you start learning really fast and you're re- like it's amazing and that feeling of learning a progress of mastery especially in your in your later years is delicious because you unexpected and it, you start setting these huge expectations and and that's where you start getting into trouble and you really want to hold yourself back and so what this means is like every time when i go to the mountain my goal is one inch at a time it, isn't like if I get a huge breakthrough or something like that happens, cool, but I never aim for that. I don't try for that. And this has allowed me to progress. Sure. I've fallen down and there've been nicks and cuts and bruises. But um, if you look in, if you read in our country, um, it's the big mountain lines where I actually like, I hurt myself. And most of that was like the most injured I got is because a guy freakiest accident I've ever seen in 50 years of skiing. A guy ran into me after I jumped a cliff he was coming into the line from a blind spot and ran into me. I landed from a cliff jump and he was coming in to like this blind line and neither of us could see each other, which was like one of the most random, like I was trying to escape an avalanche. It was a crazy, weird, like 11 terrible things happened at once. And I was still fine and skied away and skied the rest of the day. Um, But that was like the worst, you know, injury of the season. And it was the, you know, 50 years of skiing, it was the 45 years of skiing was literally the craziest thing that's ever happened. Wow. Well, and
1: so if, if I'm listening, maybe I'm not a skier, right? This is where it always gets difficult. I think because we listen, we get excited and then we try and go uh, execute on it in our own life. And of course, a lot of this is covered in our country. So that is typically people's next step. But how do I translate this protocol into something that might work for me?
2: What you want to look for, you want a NAR style adventure right? Like one, I start with, and I I cover this a lot in the book. So one, I think it's really important to make a list. So I'm a very big believer in sort of focusing down your life as much as possible. Um, And one of the ways I filter my life uh, for yeses and nos is I have a list of my top 10 feelings, not experiences, but feelings, sensations in the world right? My favorite actual, one of them is laughing with my best friend, right? It's not hanging out. It's literally laughing with my best friend. One of them is, you know, skiing, you know, in a particular way, those sorts of things. And skiing is the top of my list. It's literally the best feeling I get on earth. And so one, if something's not on my top 10 list, chances are it's a no, because like life is short. And why am I going to bother spending it on like my 18th favorite feeling when I can, I got top five. Right. Like I'm really interested in quality of life and meaning and purpose and those sorts of things There's a really good way to sort of filter that stuff. So one, I think I start I, I think you want to start there Two, you want to find something like top five best feelings you get and then find an unfinished business in your own life. I had unfinished business in skiing and it's, that's a very long story and told throughout in our country. So I'm not going to bother with that one, but I had unfinished business. Um, and I still had something to prove or felt like I had something to prove. Um, So I think that's also important. And also I think you want something that is tied to like passion and purpose, right? Like advancing uh, flow science and the science of peak performance and the science of peak performance aging is sort of core to what I do and who I am and anything I discovered along the way advances that. So I like it's, you know, I say this in an art of impossible when you're going after you know, any kind of high, hard challenge, you want to stack motivators. Peak performers always stack motivators. They never, they do it physically, right? No, nobody is just going to eat carbohydrates. You, you want carbohydrates, you want protein, you want fat, you want to, you know, certain ratios to perform at your best. Same thing with motivators. You don't just want one motivator. Curiosity is, is great. It's a great motivator, but it's not going to, Be there for the long haul. You want curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, mastery, authenticity, right? You really, the thing about this quest that is really important, and I cover this a lot in the book, is it needs to be very authentic. And the reason is this. Carl Rogers, great psychologist, humanist psychologist, made made an argument, and a lot of people have since proven him right neurobiologically, that our drive for authenticity, to fully express who we are, um, is a functions like a fundamental drive like our drive for sex or, 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 you know, thirst or, you know, shelter, those kinds of things. That's a lot of motivation. And, and we sort of know why now and we sort of really have a good grip on it, but um, authenticity uh, really matters. So you're aiming for sort of an authentic question. There's an entire movement right now in education known as authentic learning. That is because we learn so much better when there's an alignment. And one of it is that there's a simple physiological property. So both autonomy and complete concentration are flow triggers, but interestingly they're linked. So one of the things that we know about the human uh, brain is that from a, w- like, we like driving the bus, right? We pay more attention to where the bus is going when we're driving and neurologically authenticity or like autonomy, the urge to drive the bus and attention are coupled you literally can't pay maximum attention to a subject if you're not dr- driving in a direction you want to go and you can't have peak performance or flow without the ability to maximize attention so you always like i always say that like if you it's a work thing and you oh i got to do this fucking thing for work and i don't want to do it and god damn it well you first of all you've just locked yourself out of flow Right. And whatever's hard, it's only going to get harder without flow because that's how do humans do peak performance. So you got to reframe the challenge. You got to say, Oh, you know, 90% of this whole task is total bullshit. But you know, in this part, I'm going to get better at a sales pitch. And yeah, I may hate sales, but I know if I'm going to accomplish my purpose, my passion, I'm going to, I got to learn some sales. And this part of this thing. So you got to reframe the task. So part of it is aligned with passion and purpose. Otherwise, you literally can't pay maximum attention. You're going to be locked out of flow and peak performance. Same sort of thing with with these kind of harder quests. You want really authentic quests. um, Really, really important. So I use a lot of like those kinds of filters that I've been describing um, for my quest. And the other thing I always say, this is why. So there's a lot to do in peak performance in general and peak performance aging. Um, it, the, it only ratchets up because in peak performance in your in your twenties and your thirties, if you screw it up, you just screwed it up. But in your fifties, as I said, if you're not going forward, you're going backwards. So if you're literally not doing these things, there's a cost, there's a penalty, and so you re- it really matters. But there's a lot to do. So I always what I say, and we do this at the Flow Research Connect- Collective, right, which is the organization I'm the executive director of, um, where we, we we do a lot of research into peak performance. Uh, neuroscience and then we use what we uh, learn to train people and we work in 130 countries and we train tens of thousands of people every month and um everybody from like soccer moms and insurance brokers and like just average folks to like you know most of the most top companies facebook Accenture, audi and professional athletes and members of the u.s special forces and, and whatever but like our stuff works for everybody that's one of the reasons i'm mentioning we measure everything and we're really comfortable with that and um multi-tool solutions so at the collective the one commonality among everybody we train they're all busy right so what we look for and this is mandatory i think for peak performance aging and this is another filter: is you want a multi-tool solution you want a single thing that solves multiple problems right so when i say challenging social creative activities that play blah 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 the reason all those things matter is underneath each one of those terms there's like 11 things that are boxes that are getting checked off you don't have to follow my protocol right but one of the action sports are great for big performance aging and you want proof the three of the longest lived communities in america are eagle pitkin and summit county colorado that's bale aspen beaver creek copper mountain you know what i mean like big outdoor communities all that stuff um really, really. And it, by the way, Summit County, Colorado, people outlive uh, average people by about a decade. So it's a big, it's a big boost, right? Um, yeah. And and very healthy lives. Um, so, but you want these multi-tool solutions, right? Skiing action sports, they're multi-tool solutions, even though they're the very things that we think, you know, we're too old for, I always say that when, whenever the voice in your head says you're too old for this shit, yeah, remember the voice is lying. Yeah, Like that is, that is fear. That's what that is, is fear and it's fear disguising itself as wisdom and it's actually sort of killing you um, if you if you really understand the facts of peak performance aging. So an action sports and I mean, go skiing, go snorkeling, go scuba diving, go rollerblading, go roller skating. There's a long, 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 long list of these kinds of activities. And if you can't stand it, there's tennis or badminton or, you know, those sorts of things that, that, um, and it worked, by the way, there's really cool graphs on like, what are the best they don't, they didn't consider action sports in a lot of these studies because these are more relatively new ideas, but there's all kinds of studies and like, is it better to join a gym or play tennis or soccer or swim or whatever? And like, we know like you can join a gym and that will add about a year and a half to your life. Or you can play tennis, and it'll add nine years. Wow! Like we, what like about pickleball? Um, pickleball is probably really good because badminton's also very high up there. Pickle, so That's pickleball right. is probably really great. You know where what's counterintuitive? Swimming is actually not great, and they love telling old people to swim. Right? Right. It's not right? Very and social. the reason it's not great is it doesn't load your joints. So there's no Uh bone density improvements, right? Right, There's zero bone density. And that's one of the main things you have to work on over time.
1: I got to ask you, uh, I asked pickleball for a
2: reason. What about things that are more ubiquitous, like golf? Let me answer on golf. There's a handful of problems with golf, uh, though it's certainly better than nothing. One, are you carrying your own clubs? Right. Are you walking? Probably not. If you're not walking and or carrying your own clubs, like not a chance. Right. If you're walking and you're carrying your own clubs, better. Now, uh, if you're walking and 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 say carrying fewer clubs than normal and you're playing in sort of a creative, interesting, playful way, that's that's better. But the biggest problem with golf, um, and it's actually a problem I'm having in park skiing, totally random. In golf, you favor one side of your body. Yep. Right. Yep. And so in park skiing, you have a natural way you spin. Uh, I spin counterclockwise. Yeah, same, and same thing. You have to spin to, to really train the body. So, like this past month, I have been doing—I've been doing sliding spins on the surface of the, of the snow, right? No air, in my opposite direction. For every time I spin off a jump in counterclockwise, I do a sliding spin or whatever some safe version of it. If I throw a one a to my right off a jump, which I can do. Um, throwing a one eighty to my left of a really small jump becomes what I try to do next because you've got to develop each side equally. Otherwise, you start running into problems. So there's like golf does that twitch muscle response and all that stuff. But it's only half your body. So what are you doing On for side. the other half? And yeah. are you stretching first? Are you stretching afterwards? You know, is your so VO two max? This is one of these classic use it or lose it skills. And, and VO two max, if you were studying peak performance aging around two thousand to two thousand and ten. This was the hammer that scientists like to beat you with. Ah, fuck it. It's not possible. What about VO2 max, kid? Falls off at 25 and by 50, you're fucked. That was standard response. And then this started going out recently and measuring the VO2 max of octogenarian triathletes. Not like world champions, just like people who had been running triathletes. And so it started, weird fact, turns out for reasons nobody quite can understand Men and women in their 50s and 60s and 70s in really extreme distances, like 200 miles, 100 mile races, are outperforming younger people. And they can, and they have been for a while, about 5 to 10 years, and nobody can quite figure out why. So they started, they were like, okay, let's just check the VO2 max of like these octogenarian athletes. And they they looked at average people and then like sort of world record people. And they found that uh, well-trained triathletes who had started training uh, these things in r- roughly in their 50s. Had the VO2 max of healthy 35 year olds. So, when you talk about lose it or lose it skills, and it's weird. So, like we know, strength wise, you can hold on to, even until very late in life, about 70% of your muscle fibers by training. But what's really interesting is the ones that, those 70%, they get, they figure out how to do more work. So, they can overcompensate for a lot of what's lost. So, yes, they're like, you're gonna lose. I was in the gym the other day and I was talking to a guy in his mid 80s. He's like, Yeah, you know, I can sort of do everything, but I can't really box anymore. I can get in the ring but I've lost a little on my power and I can't really knock anybody out anymore. And I was like, you're 84, you're 84." And you're <laughs> yeah. literally talking about getting into the ring with like 50 year old dudes and knocking them out and like, okay, I hear you, but are you kidding me? Like seriously, are you kidding me? And the cool thing about it is he's 84 now, which means most of what we knew about peak performance aging, he didn't know. Right. Right. Like he wasn't doing this stuff until fairly recently. This is the other cool thing that we've, we've learned. We, the entire field, not we, Stephen Cutler, the flow research collective, um, is that some of the biggest impacts you can take like a, a sedentary 85 year old who is, who hasn't done shit for 25 years. And if you get them to literally just start doing like, instead of taking the elevator, they walk the stairs the, those are the biggest performance gains. You can make huge performance gains and huge health gains simply from like, so even very late in life and High did some interesting research where he found that like, this was the last study he actually ran. He wanted to know flow is so important to development and healthy aging and meaning and purpose and, and quality of life and everything else. He wanted to know, does flow, is, is our desire for flow continuous? Through the lifetime, or does it drop off a cliff at any point? And the study ran into the late 80s. It stays constant into your late 80s and only falls off when your physical abilities decline. So the very thing he was talking to me about, right, he was literally showing in the study. Like it was, I didn't know this. He died. And the study came out posthumously almost two years later. And I saw hmm. it and I went, Oh, son of a bitch. Yeah. That was right. No wonder. No yeah. wonder we had that conversation. There right, it is. It's right, right, there. right. And uh yeah, it really, it, w- it was really poignant to me, but those physical abilities, you can hang, like one of the things about the, the nuns that we learned from that study and elsewhere, they're very physically active. There's they're a lot of education. There's a lot of walking to class, walking through nature, like that, not crazy activity, but a lot of movement. And this is a constant in blue zones, really long-lived communities. It's not that they exercise like mad. It's that they often move once every 20 minutes. So like big blue zone, uh, sheep herding communities. Right. You see it. You see that. And with, when you're herding sheep, you walk for 20 minutes, you stop the sheep eat for a while and you walk for 20 more minutes and you stop. And Right. Um, or uh, in, in Japan, uh, Okinawa, you see a lot of gardening. So, like people like move for a little while. They weed. They come over here. They weed, and then they go over it. Right. So it's this sort of constant integrated movement in the life. Now, you can duplicate it through exercise, according to the WHO program, right? But like that's what you see in in these long-lived communities.
1: What's crazy is that this tie flows through so much of your work, and I know that's what you've dedicated your life to. But for those listening, you know. I'll, I'll link to the episode we did eight years ago, as we were talking about flow and really the genesis of a lot of this. And so, uh, and and the cool thing is, you mentioned in Nar Country, it's not a textbook; it's a book you want to read, and then you get to the end and feel like you can uh, better implement a lot of these things in your life. So, uh, the book is Nar Country: Growing Old, Staying Rad, and we'll link to that. You also mentioned we can go watch what National Geographic had filmed. What would be some next steps if I'm listening to this? Maybe I'm checking out the book. I'm going to your website. How do I start
2: implementing this based on the resources you have created? Okay. So, I mean, the place to start is check out the book. Before you check out the book, narcountry.com. Um, there's, first of all, if you're not familiar with the Rise of Superman, any of the shit we were talking about, there's a peak performance primer. There's like... Uh, four videos and, and, and some papers like you it's right there for anybody um, that's up there. Uh, if you want to take it farther there again, on the NAR country page um, or through the flow research collective um, you can, you can sign up for enter the NAR, which is our peak performance aging training. You could go uh, for the collective flow research, All of our peak performance trainings are available um, through that website. Anybody who wants to go further, in the, in the flow stuff, if you go to, uh, sorry for the cheesy URL, but it turns out people remember it, getmoreflow.com. I like it. Which I fought my staff against for years. And they were <laughs> like, good. nobody remembers anything. Right. They remember Get More. So you can sign up for a free hour long, uh, basically coaching session with any ma- a member of my staff. They'll tell you about our training, see if something's right for you, but it's really low friction. Um, It's mostly a coaching call for That's awesome. you. Um so that's available to anybody. And truthfully, stephencollar.com, flowresearchcollective.com, narcountry.com, there are so many free resources, places to start. You can go as deep as you want to go. And then there's, you know, a bunch of trainings on the on the back end. And that's perfect
1: because the reason I wanted to end there is of course we'll link to this, but uh, it's hard to take action and you because you've been doing this same type of thing for so long, have actually added on over time to make that action clear, obvious, easy, like you just said, remove friction. So we don't have excuses. Anybody? So, yeah,
2: I, yeah, the difference between Rise of Superman is, and now is 10 years of training people. Right. 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 Like the, that's the, the real difference is like, couple hundred thousand study subjects, right. maybe half a million study subjects between now and then maybe more. Um, and that, you know, that and and has really helped. So, and we've, you know, and we've also, the field itself, shit we didn't know. Like, how do you train group flow? Back in 2013 when I wrote Rise, we've now actually got maps for and things like and It's covered in our country a little bit, but there's other, a lot of other stuff. Things like that have gotten very clear. So we're getting better at the applied side.
1: There we go. I love it. Hey, Stephen, thank you so much. I love this work. I love what you do. Thanks for being on
0: the show again.
2: Chris, my pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Talk to you later.
0: This week's guest was Stephen Kotler. As always, it was hosted by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Stephen's book, Nar Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad, is available wherever books are sold. All right, let's get into the quick housekeeping items. If you ever want to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.